Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Basima Marue, to our show today. Basima is the CEO and co-founder of Skin Tea, the first ever collagen sparkling tea positioned at the intersection of beauty, food, and wellness. Basima has over decades worth of experience working with well-known brands like Nike and Spanx. As a board member of the Sarah Blakely Foundation, she is an active supporter of female empowerment, and she beautifully demonstrates this in her TEDx Portland talk. Skin Tea was born out of her own personal needs. While working at Nike and at the height of her career, her body started breaking down. Basima was dealing with stage four endometriosis, which she didn't even know at the time, and had to do an impromptu back surgery. It was at this point that both her surgeon and her mom encouraged her to take collagen every day to help make sure that her recovery post-surgery went well. She ended up bouncing back to life so quickly after her surgery and realized the power of collagen at that time. She was convinced of all the benefits, but knew there must be a better way to consume it. It was at this stage that the idea of Skin Tea came about and she partnered with her incredible co-founders to create a more delicious way to get your collagen intake every day. We talked to Basima about her health journey and why it's so important for all of us to prioritize self-care in our very busy lives, and she shares some tips on how she does that. We also discuss the very early days of building skin tea and the importance of being incredibly scrappy to get your first product out in the world, and the biggest lessons she's learned in the corporate world and working alongside Sarah Blakely that has helped her build her purpose-driven brand. Welcome to the show, Basima. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you. Well, I've been a big fan of yours from afar. We do have a few mutual friends and, you know, you're Middle Eastern and I'm super excited <laughs> to elevate more, you know, women of color, Middle Eastern stories. So it's a personal honor to have you on again. And I'm so excited for our audience to get to know you and your incredible company, Skin Tea. So appreciate it. Thank you. So before we jump into your story, I actually want to talk about the power of belief, specifically believing in yourself and how important that is, as you know, to building your empire. So for our audience listening today, what do you think are a couple of reasons why you think women find it hard to believe in themselves? It's such an amazing question. And the best way for me to answer it, I think, is is really to look at myself and my journey in terms of being able to believe in myself. And and I think it's just with women, I feel like it's really funny because I come from corporate America, having worked at Nike for 10 years. And there's like this confidence with men about like when they would ask for a salary, they were just really bold and confident about believing in themselves, asking for the salary, asking for a big role that they would figure it out later. And I think as women, there's a little bit more of like, you have to have it figured out and you have to have proven it before you can say, okay, I believe in myself. And I think it's a bit of a cultural thing. I think for me, it's less about believing in myself. I think that muscle was starting to be built over time with my successes over the years and also my failures, more than probably my failures, because overcoming them created that muscle of, I can believe mm. in myself because I'm not afraid to fail and then I can recover. So I think a lot of it is the inner work that you need to do. And men are just predisposed to kind of go, yeah, I deserve that bigger thing and, and I'm already there. And for women, it's a lot more of like, I need to prove all these things and do all these things and now I'm worthy. And so I feel like my advice to women a lot around believing in themselves is it comes from the inside and what you're capable of and what your potential is versus just what you've already done or how far along you are on the journey. Yeah, I love that. And what really stands out is how you mentioned how important your failures were, right? Because yeah. you have even overcoming that build that confidence and that belief muscle. And that can start with the smallest of tasks. So I love that you brought that up. And your entire journey, which we'll go through today, will highlight so many things. So hopefully it'll definitely resonate with women listening. But 
I actually want to now start with your upbringing. I'm super fascinated by your very multicultural upbringing. You know, you're Lebanese American, and you grew up all over the world with really incredible parents that had very humble beginnings. So I'd love to learn more about your family and upbringing and how you think it's impacted the woman that you are today. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it all goes back to my parents and I think the world of them. And, you know, I was born in the U.S., but raised in Cote d'Ivoire in West Africa. But my family, both my mom and father are Lebanese from Lebanon, and they were born into poor families. So they're self-made. So there's something in my DNA around that. And when we were growing up in Africa until I was 15, I really saw the gap between the rich and the poor. And it was like, basically, if you had a house over your head and you were you were good, you were rich. And if not, you were poor. It was such a dramatic gap that I grew up and it really humbled me and taught me so much. And my father is one of the hardest working people I've ever met and self-made. Like he taught himself English and French and Arabic. He couldn't continue going to school. And my mom was married at 14. At the time, it was considered okay So she was married really young and my grandmother was married at 16 as well. So I kind of grew up seeing all of that. And my father luckily really believed in the power of education because he worked so hard to educate himself. He believed in that also for his daughters. So when we moved to Canada, I do consider myself a global citizen. When I was 15, I was exposed to another whole new world there. And so all these different cultures, I think, really made me who I am today And then coming back to work in the U.S. where I was born kind of took me full circle. And then I had opportunities, for example, to work in Belgium and other places with Nike internationally. So I feel really lucky. But I do believe that my humble beginnings has taught me so much also about being able to go all in as an entrepreneur, because I kind of know what it's like to not have anything and to really really get grounded around less is more and you can survive with less. But I'm also the type who can really thrive on making a lot and living a different lifestyle. So I think being able to toggle between those two different lifestyles is actually a gift so that when you need to, you can pare it down and still feel that fulfillment and not be tied to material things. And I definitely tie that back to my upbringing with my family. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, to have the confidence to know that everything's going to be okay with more minimal financial support, because I know you took a big leap, which we'll get into, but it's pretty incredible to see just your family and how the path that they created for you is just so different than, you know, the way they were raised and grown up, but they sound like amazing parents. So I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your health journey because it's tied so much into your career as well as your personal life. And I know growing up, you always thought of yourself as quote unquote weak, but it really <laughs> wasn't until you got very successful in your corporate job at Nike that you realized, you know, your health was deteriorating and your body was just shutting down. So can you talk to us more about that moment and maybe some of the learnings you had looking back at your upbringing and maybe some of the hormones that played a role in all that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I love sharing this because I want every 16 year old girl to watch me right now because I feel so much, you know, there is so little around hormonal work. And I feel like there's so much more to be done around understanding that. And when I was 16, I had super elevated levels of cortisol and it really messed with my skin. I was gaining a lot of weight. I couldn't understand. There was so much shame around it. And I decided, okay, if I'm going to be overweight and unhealthy and weak, like I was saying, because I didn't feel like I was strong, I want to at least be smart. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I could have both. It was for me like one or the other. And so my journey began then where at 16 years old battling like what's going on with me. And I didn't know at the time until I worked at Nike and even years later that I had stage four endometriosis by that time that I had PCOS. I had all these things going on. And when you go to doctors, at least at that time, they think you're just whining or you're complaining about your periods and the pain. And what I learned more than anything is it's different for every person. There's no diet that's the same for every person. There's no treatment that's necessarily the same. You really need to understand yourself and it starts from there. So my journey, I got healthier and healthier over time. And I would say I was the one with the most challenges, but it was a gift because at my age now, I really am in tune with my body. Mm. I really think about what I put in my body and how it makes me feel. Whereas if I didn't think about that, I think I would just be eating anything because I could stay slim. And then maybe face different problems later. So for me, it was kind of a battle over the years and it got more and more clear over time. And then when I was at Nike, amazing company that I loved working for, but my health was shutting down the last couple of years where I was just hitting a wall. And what really set me over the edge was I had severe sciatica. And that's a funny story too, because I would keep going to all these different doctors and they'd be like, you just need to stretch. It's probably just a muscle thing. And I finally was so fed up after two years of alternative medicine 
And my gut was telling me, this is not, this is structural. I finally went to a doctor who had me do an MRI and they were like, oh my gosh, it's hitting the sciatic nerve. You need to get surgery. This is going to change your life because it was so difficult and I was hiding the pain all the time as a lot of women do. And I got the surgery and it changed my life. And so I left Nike and I got the surgery. And at the time I still didn't realize I had endometriosis, which is hilarious, but I did leave and had this aha moment with my surgeon telling me you should consume a lot of collagen during and after your surgery to heal. And that's when I started discovering the power of collagen and herbs and teas and how what you put in your body has such a powerful effect Mm -hmm. on your inflammation and your mood and and your hormones. And it was just life-changing for me. So although it was a time when I felt I was kind of breaking down, it was the biggest gift in the end where it was like the culmination of all my health issues starting to make sense for me. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. I love that story because I think it's so important to talk about, you know, I was in a similar boat, but I just had very bad PMS and, you know, doctors at that time gave me birth control. So I was good for years. I like, I was like, oh, my symptoms are gone until I got off. And then I went through a whole cascade of hormonal issues. And I'm very passionate, similar to you, because now that I've fixed my own self through the right eating, right lifestyle shifts, you know, it's game changing to know how great you could feel is I didn't even know this existed. Right. I'm very passionate about your story because I think so many of us might think that something's off, but we don't really listen to our gut. And that's like a muscle you need to build that I'm, I'm even still working on. So hopefully anyone who's listening today 
it inspires them just to be in tune and really like the simple day-to-day things, which we'll get into on your journey, it can be just so critical. So very passionate about this space as well. And both of us started a company around it. So I'm I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned you left Nike, right? And you ultimately ended up working with the Sarah Blakely Foundation. And what I love so much about your entire life story, you know, not only do you have this multicultural upbringing, but you have such a varied career, which I love, right? You had a career in IT, supply chain to strategy. I'm curious, how was your experience working with Sarah? And are there one or two things that you learned working with her and being in her orbit that you can share today that maybe has impacted your now entrepreneurial journey? Absolutely. And yeah, no, it's so funny, my career path. So many young women ask me like, Oh, what should I do with my career? Should I just be really linear? And I say, you know what? Like I actually worked for Sarah in two capacities, one strategic planning on the business side. And then on the other hand, ran the foundation. So I did both, which were my passions, but I was very unconventional. I followed my heart. I wanted a lot of different experiences and it didn't make sense to so many people that watched me. And then it all made sense when I started running Skin Tea because all that experience from supply chain to IT to a nonprofit allowed me to build a purpose-driven business. Mm. And so I think if you know, like, look, I love finance. I live and breathe finance. There's nothing else in my whole life I want to do. Then you're that type of person. You can be the best and the best and have mastery in that. But my personality isn't like that. I like to see the big picture. I like vision. I like to dabble in a lot of different things and see something get created. And I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit. So I feel like allowing myself to follow my heart and kind of to your point, your gut, even with your career, not only your health issues is really key. And that segues into Sarah. First, she's one of the most phenomenal people I've ever met. Not only one of the most brilliant, but one of the most generous and kindest people I've ever met in my life. So it was unreal to be able to work for her. And I always tell her it was It was kind of serendipitous because I started the company, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, Skin Tea, with two of my co-founders, a doctor and a chef. And it's like we started it, and then I was going to go consult to save money for the company. And I went to work as a consultant at Spanx at first for just a few months. And it's almost like I got so lucky that I got to go, and I ended up working full-time for Sarah. And while we saved money to invest in our business and learn from like this unbelievable entrepreneur and then come back and launch it. And so I always joke that what I learned from Sarah is my inner MBA. It's hard Mm. to just list two things, but if I were to list them, one of the biggest things about Sarah is she does things her way. She is not caught up with what's conventional and what the rules are. And that's why she's an innovator. So I really learned how her mind works around the way she looks at things. And it's so refreshing, like even allowing me as a full-time employee to run my startup on the side is not normal in corporate America. And she allowed that because she had trust that the work would get done. And then also around trusting your gut, she really has led by intuition for so many years, but she puts the work behind honing in that muscle. It's not like she just says, oh, just trust your gut. There's work that you put behind that. So that's why I call what I went through with Sarah, my inner MBA. I had a real life MBA and it taught me nothing compared to (laughs) Sarah. So I think, you know, it was a gift for me to be able to absorb that and be around that just phenomenal energy, but also seeing what it means to be kind and generous Mm -hmm. in the context of someone that successful. You don't see that all the time with billionaires or with people who have been that successful and who are leading purpose-driven companies. So it was a real honor for me. And I learned so much during that period. Yes. And I mean, I see the way you're leading your company and your huge inspiration as well. And you mentioned it's different following your gut, but it's so important to do the work behind yes. building that intuition. And I know you've really tapped into that, which is why yes. I admire the way you've built Skinty. But do you have any recommendations for anyone listening on how we can build that such important muscle? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the biggest thing for me, and people are going to get annoyed with my response, but it is self-care, but I call it micro self-care. So in my position, you're right. I actually, we can talk about what I did, but I went like all the way down when I stopped working at Nike, I lived in a tiny studio in LA. I mean, I really downgraded my life big time, but I was sleeping, which no one believes because I'm very on and my personality is really like, go, go, go. And I respond fast to emails, but believe it or not, I sleep eight hours a night since the beginning of working with Skin Tea, unless something happened. And when I was working at Nike and other companies, I did not. Mm. And most people assume a startup means you don't sleep and you're in your garage. And I think we need to look at that in a different way because these little acts of self-care, like getting enough sleep, 
I take a hot bath. Actually, Dr. Bader is one of the people who taught me that even 10 minutes, she always calls it the transition from your daytime to your evening time. And that was so powerful for me to have that 10 to 15 minutes to 20, if I have the time of just a hot bath to transition to the evening, calm your system down. I started to learn a lot about, I wanted to be, and I admit this because of my childhood, not feeling as strong. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to run a marathon and I ran too. I wanted to lift heavy weights and be like that person. But the reality is for my body type and for endometriosis and what I have, calm is actually better. Lifting weights is actually really critical, building muscle, but not necessarily super heavy weight. So I started to learn these moments of micro self-care calms my system down and allows me to be ready for all these other things. So one of my biggest things is the sleep and the hot bath, believe it or not, because I can't meditate the way others, you know, women are so hard on themselves. They're like, okay, I need to meditate and I need to do it right. Well, that's stressful too. Yes. (laughs) So whatever your meditation is, do that. And for me, it's the hot bath, but it's also reading. Just sitting down and reading a book is my way of decompressing. So finding little things you can do. And more than anything, it's doing a little bit. I no longer do the one hour workouts a day. I absolutely just don't. But I'll do like 10 minutes on my vibration plate. I'll do some posture exercises. I'll do a tiny bit on the bike and I'll feel so good about myself and go for a walk. And then other days I'll do a little bit more, but I used to be different. I used to be like, I got to do an hour and I got to hit like 30 minutes on this and then 30 minutes on that. And now I feel if I do a little bit, that takes me a long way. And as long as I make it a habit and there's movement, then I feel great. So my biggest advice around if you want to free yourself up to tap into your intuition, you need to be in a state of calm. I think that's really important. Yeah. I love this. And it's funny because we have very similar backgrounds working corporate America. I never slept. And it was kind of like a badge of honor. Like, I'm going to answer that email at 12 a.m. Like, I got to prove myself. And until I met my husband, who has been in the world of health and wellness for decades, I was like, oh my gosh, I just can feel so much more powerful with sleep. And like you said, these micro adjustments of even going for a 10 minute walk, doing like a 20 minute workout, because sometimes I'm like, I don't have time to do an hour is what I used to do. But all these things just allow you to, like you said, to be more calm. And especially as an entrepreneur, when you are navigating this unknown world, it's like, how do you bring that structure and calmness in your life? So I think everything you're saying is gold. I think it's super underrated. Sleep is so key. So I completely agree with everything you're saying. So I know before you joined Sarah at her company and working with her in her foundation, you had the idea of skin tea because you just mentioned you left everything to live in a studio and save money. So I'd love to hear more about, you know, did you always know you wanted to start the business? And how did the inspiration come around the products? I knew two things. I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit. I think it's the Lebanese thing because my father is very entrepreneurial. So there's always been that entrepreneurial spirit, which I think kind of shows in my career, right? Trying this, trying that. So that's always been the bug that's, that's always been a part of me. But the other part was, no, I didn't plan it. I think it was my health breaking down and me feeling like I had hit rock bottom. You know, I was like, I'm too young to be feeling like my health is deteriorating. And if I'm going to work so hard and make all this money just to spend it on health bills, then it's not really worth it. So I kind of had a moment of, I need to get my purpose and understand my purpose in life. And that's what led to this aha moment when I was taking all this collagen and everyone, I remember all my Nike friends would be like, did you go away to a spa? And I'm like, no. And I started realizing that the collagen and the herbs and just this lifestyle of calming down just had really improved my skin and the glow in my hair. And so people are like, I don't know that she really went and got back surgery. (laughs) So it was really funny. And I went to Dr. Bader, who was my naturopathic doctor for years. And I literally just said, articulated the white space at the time. And I said, do you have a better tasting collagen? I literally, and she's like, why? And I said, well, I do the pills, the powders and the bone broth. And there's, I'm so sick of these sticky powders that I always have to mix. I can't do bone broth every night. I just want something that tastes better. And she looked at me and she was like, well, I have um, one of my best friends who has a culinary background. We've been coming up with recipes because you're not the only one. And we've been combining it with herbs and teas. And she was so amazing. She's like, these great herbs for your hormones. And this is for your skin. And this is for your mood. And I'm like, that's awesome. So I take the recipe and I'm like, this is so much work. Because she's like very picky about you need to source it from this great place. And so I just said to her and articulated the next piece of it, which is I wanted something easy. And I said, can I buy it from you? Can you just make it? And she was like, no. And she's like, and then I said, well, I could write you a business plan. I have experience. And we went and met at Starbucks and I was like adamant of giving her a pro bono business plan so they could make it and I could buy it. And long story short, it was super intuitive. And we had this aha moment, Amy and I, and she said, you should meet Elizabeth. And we decided to start this brand. And it came from a just this absolute confidence that we weren't the only ones who would need this. 
and who would want this. And so we decided very intuitively, let's sign papers and do this. And then I was off consulting and saving money. And we said, let's just start working on it on the side. And it wasn't, we didn't overthink it. Mm. It was just, that's how badly we wanted it. And for me, it was self-care in a can. Like I have it every day. I'm drinking it now, but it was like, I can just reach for this and get all the herbs that Amy recommended and Dr. Bader and get my collagen and have it in a light and refreshing format. And it was just like a dream for me to be able to have it for myself and then a bigger dream to offer it to the world. And that's really how it started. And I worked for Sarah for a couple of years. And then when I was ready again, she's just special beyond. And she sent me off and supported me and was really excited for us to launch it. And so it's come full circle. And we launched it in January of 2019 in LA. I ended up moving to LA and I rented a tiny little apartment because of course, you're not going to take money out of the company. We were raising money. And the last thing you want to say is we're raising money so founders can get paid. So yeah. we for two to three years, didn't get paid. So we're just living off our, I was living off my savings. Yeah. And what I appreciate about your story, I mean, it's great that you guys were a little naive because people always say like the beverage industry is like one of the most difficult, you know, industries to break into. But I want to talk more about those early days because I think a lot of people think those, you know, you need essentially capital to launch a business. But what I appreciate about you guys, you were so scrappy. So I'd love to hear more about the quote unquote R&D to kind of get the taste in place and how you guys did your first production run, because I think this could help a lot of people listening. No, absolutely. First, I want to say being ignorant is a blessing sometimes. I don't think we would have launched this. If someone had told me or showed me a movie about how difficult this would be, I wouldn't have. And then it was so irritating to hear the number of people say to us, you know, the beverage industry is a monster. It's really challenging. I'll never do that to an entrepreneur because it's like, who did anything great that wasn't hard, right? Mm. And it was a little bit for me demeaning that they just looked at us and thought three women, no beverage experience they kind of dismissed it. And now we look at where we are and we're just like, thankfully we, we didn't listen. And a lot of those people to be fair, fueled our desire to do well and then ended up supporting us. But it was really hard to keep hearing that in the beginning, but now I get it. So (laughs) (laughs) what was funny about it is we were unbelievably scrappy, Amy and Elizabeth. And it is partly because the three of us as women were so different Mm -hmm. and we brought complementary skill sets to each other and we respected, they did not want to be on the business side. Dr. Bader would never allow me near her patients. And Elizabeth kicks me out of the kitchen. So it was basically like Amy focusing on the formula. Elizabeth makes it taste amazing because Elizabeth just will not accept anything that doesn't taste great. I get to taste it and I could focus on the business and the marketing and and the go-to-market strategy. And it was super scrappy. It was in the kitchen showing it to some... I remember on the rooftop of my apartment, you know, it was an apartment building. I'd, I'd organized these sessions with some of my Nike friends just to do tastings. And then you would hear the results and then you'd feel encouraged to try again. It was a lot of like really just asking our friends and the more they got excited, the more we got excited. And then you start to expand the group when you kept tinkering with it. And then it was incredibly hard to get true samples because in the beverage world, the minimums are so high. So it's like it would break the bank right away. So what we had to do, we got really lucky. We kept calling and calling and we got a thousand no's. And that's another thing I learned from Sarah is it just takes one yes. Mm. And so we would call and call and get the door slammed. And then we found out about a brewery that was in Portland, Oregon that I love. And they had an extra machine and they were just like so kind. They heard our story. That's one thing I would recommend anyone watching is your passion and your story and why you're doing something opens doors. And these guys just looked at us and said, let's give them a shot. (laughs) And they allowed us to use their little machine. It was even more hysterical is we brought a mobile canner. So we hired a mobile canner that would come and set up shop at the facility at the brewery and literally do it manually. And we were on the production line, the three of us. And it was so hard because when we first started, they were sleeved cans. They were not printed cans. And for those who don't know what that means is sleeved cans, you get a silver can and then you shrink wrap it over it. And so it was so intensive and we did it all ourselves, but that's how we got started. We were able to create samples, then go to trade shows. And it was those trade shows that really validated it at a larger scale. And from there, we started getting interest from various retailers. And then we could take that and get an order place for production. So it was a good two and a half years though, of doing sleeved cans, which is very challenging before we got to printed cans. And when we got to printed cans, we knew we made it because that was really scaling basically because the minimums were so high for those. I would get emotional just (laughs) like being able to see your business grow to that next level, right? It's like, you can't do all those things in the beginning, but you know, once I hit this metric, it's always so fulfilling. And I just love this story because I know you were saying you were calling so many people and you literally like would beg them and share the story. So it's like, 
we're in that process finding the right co-packer and it's I'm going through the same thing. So I think it's a huge learning for anyone who's looking to start a business and find the right partner. And one thing you mentioned, you guys self-funded for two and a half years. I would love to hear more about how you thought about funding the business, when you thought it was a right opportunity to bring in investors and your experience around all that. Yeah. And one thing I would say to people watching is you just have to have no shame and build thick skin. It's still really hard. We got to this milestone, but we've got another milestone now. So it's constantly hard. But what I would say around investors and funding is if you can do it all without funding, do it. That's really my opinion. Like it's amazing to own 100% of your business if you can. We just absolutely could not in this industry. And so we got it just enough to have a prototype. So when I would go to investors, I had a silver can and a picture of what the packaging was going to look like. So we would scrap, we would take credit lines. We borrowed money from our 401ks. I mean, we went all in just to get enough to get to a prototype stage because that's the point at which the vision is no longer just a concept you're talking about. Like in Silicon Valley, people get away with that. But in the beverage world or the CPG world, they kind of want to see something. So we invested enough to get it to that point. Then I got it in front of a amazing and we did a little bit of a friends and family raise. And then I got in front of a amazing VC that doesn't act like a traditional VC. Their name is Bam. Brian Lee is one of the partners. He's unbelievable. And I came with them with a silver can and a photo and they were like, okay, this is really cool. And they loved it. And they said, but come back when you have even more traction. So then I went and started building the business to try and get interest. And when I came back, they immediately said, we'll lead you around. So the first no, doesn't mean it's gone. You have to build and nurture these relationships. They can advise you and you build that progress. So you have to find what's your threshold financially and then go to get investor money. And I would do as much friends and family as I can early on because VCs and private equity is later stage and VCs can be tough with the requirements that they have. But you want the people that believe in your dream. That's what I would say, friends and family to begin with. One thing you mentioned is all about nourishing relationships and even taking that out of context of just fundraising. I know that's been a huge impact in your overall career. So I'd love for you to talk more about the importance of nourishing these relationships and building mentors and people in your network, because it really could be game changing. I get that question a ton. And the number one question is, how do you get a mentor? And I said, you know, what's funny is I never thought about it that way. I built relationships. Like I was so lucky to build relationships with certain executives at Nike. And I was just more enamored with who they were and how, what I could learn from them. And then I always wanted to give back. I think the worst thing you can do is build a relationship that's transactional. You don't want to build a relationship because you're like, oh, later that person could invest or, or I could get this out of them. I think you just be human and you never know. I now look in retrospect and go, wow, that looks like maybe it was planned because I've got all these incredible investors. They're people I used to work with or work for. And that's the biggest honor you can have is people that you worked for investing in you because they believe in you and because of what you brought to their lives. So I feel like that's really key is think of relationships as a just a constant thing, nurturing and building that. And it doesn't need to be because I'm going to get something from them. Giving them something can also help you grow. So I'm really focused on what I can learn from people and my growth and then what I can give back. I always try to think like, can I give something to this person. Because here's the funny thing, that's selfish in itself. I feel good when I'm able to give. If I'm only taking, I really struggle. Yeah. So in a way, it's like, I always want to figure out a way to give and it's not transactional. It's just because it makes me feel great. And I've been on the really lucky side of people giving back to me. So I think yeah. it's something that should just be part of your lifestyle. And But I also think you need to be bold enough to go, okay, here's a potential investor. I want to go and sell that story. I don't necessarily have that relationship. But be okay with the no's or be okay with that investor saying it's not the right time because they can connect you to 30 other people. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they'll come back to you at some point, intersect in your life in a different way. So I value every person I come across because they're looking at me and giving me time for my baby. And it means a lot. So for me, I'm always in a state of gratitude. And I think that's another big one is constantly being in that state of gratitude and openness is really key. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it's a lifestyle. It's a long-term thing. It's not yeah. transactional when you're building the relationship. Yeah. And similar to you, I'm always like, how can I help them? And it comes from yeah. a real natural place, which people yeah. can read, right? So, oh, yeah. and one thing that you also talked about is these investors that you're meeting. I know in another interview, you talked about how you were a little hesitant in the early days to ask for money. And I get that, right? It's always uncomfortable to yeah. go and ask for anyone's money. So how did you kind of break that fear? Yeah. Because you clearly had hundreds of conversations around it. Yes. 
You know, in the beginning, it's part of our story too, as two Middle Eastern women, we probably, I I don't want to presume with you, but like I fought for my independence, right? I saw my mom married at 14, my grandma at 16. So for me, making money and being financial stable became like my, that's me. And it was like a badge. And then all of a sudden, I actually don't have a lot of money. I'm asking for money. So it kind of almost went from like, I'm a successful person to I'm completely unsuccessful, even though that's part of the game. Like Mm. you ask and you fundraise. And actually you look at celebrities with a ton of money, they still won't put all their money in the business. They actually fundraise too. So it was a huge kind of learning curve for me, one, to get past that culturally, that I'm not a failure, that I'm not begging. And Mm. I actually have to admit a lot of men helped me because they just kept going. It's an opportunity. It's Mm. such a great opportunity for them. Like that's sometimes how a male men think can help you as a woman, because it's like, they're just like, you'd be lucky to invest in my company. And then, (laughs) and then I, and then some of them are like, yeah, it's their loss. And I'm like, so upset if someone said no. So I don't want to admit that it was easy because in the beginning I took it so personal and being Middle Eastern, I'm a little emotional and I would be so upset. It would take days. And I'd be like, mm. they said, no, I think it's because I pitched wrong or something's wrong with my product only to realize that's the game. They may say no for reasons completely unrelated to you, which is their portfolio needs a certain amount before they can feel comfortable. They can't take a lot of risk because maybe last year, three of their companies failed. There's so many reasons outside of you. And then if there's a reason that's because of you, just learn and move on. So it's still hard to fundraise and I still find it challenging, but I have much thicker skin. And I'm realizing it's part of the game and I'm actually just doing my jobs. And when you kind of come to terms with the fact that it's expected for you to get a thousand no's before you get that one, yes, then you're just like, okay, you know, I just keep going and you're not so caught up in the emotional side of it. So I've really learned that also people who invest, it's a risky game. They are not stupid. They know that if they're investing, there's a chance it'll work and there's a chance it's not. They just want to maximize the chance that it will. And so there was always a part of me that's like, oh, I don't want to take their money just in case, but you can't think of your company that way. You got to be like, I'm all in. And that was another aha moment for me. So now I'm a lot more comfortable. And it it was a huge 180, I would say, from how I was in the beginning. And one person I have to say, his name is Brett Costin. He's this incredible coach in LA. And he said something to me and he made me do this exercise. He's like a life coach. And he said, I want you to ask for a strawberry. And the way I was asking for it he was just like, why are you asking for it like that? Like, it looks like I'm either desperate or I'm trying to convince them. And I was like, I'm just asking for a strawberry. And then through the exercise, I realized what he's trying to say is, it's a simple question. Would you like to invest? Take away the emotion. Is there anything else you need? Like he really helped me. It sounds so simple, but going through that exercise with him really changed so much for me. And I remember like a month later getting funding because I just calmed down. He goes, your question is just a request, right? It's like a it's a simple request. It's not like you're desperate. You got stuff to do. You need to know if that person's in or out and you're not in, move on. And it gave me back my power. So I think the reason I share that is your energy matters, which I hadn't thought about. Like the way I'm asking for it, maybe my body language does affect the way you're perceived by the other side. And I think that's important to learn how you show up. Yeah. And I even think energetically for the business, you know, similar to you, and it must be our families kind of grew up self-made here. Our fathers seem very similar, but it's like a badge of honor to be a financially independent woman that you don't need to rely on any man. And I think that was so ingrained in me that it was a big culture shock when I left this high paying job to invest. You know, I was very thoughtful. I had savings. So it was a blessing there, but to put in the business and not get that income coming in. And I realized like, oh my gosh, so much of my self-worth and success was tied to a job. And it took me months to kind of get over that. And I'm still battling it. I mean, it's gone in much better. But it's interesting to see that in your story as well. And one thing that stands out, you were talking about just energetically how you're asking those questions. And for me, what I realized also energetically about growing the business and how you think about the numbers plays a role, right? Like as someone who came from the world of finance, you can easily look at the numbers, be like, I'm going to hit this goal at that goal. And then I was like, this is not the right mindset and energy to build the business. And I've now become more calm and things have worked out better than I even expected. So it's just amazing how energy just plays a role in so many different aspects. And I'm curious, you know, from your story, I know in another interview, you talked about this is one of your hacks is postponing stress or postponing worry (laughs) because things have always worked its way out, you know, obviously with hard work, but I'd love to just get your perspective around that. Yes. And so to your point though, around the energy, it's into a point that like you still struggle. I think I'll forever struggle 
I think I'll always be anxious. I think the learning is remembering real quickly. That's all. Mm. Like the muscle to remember, oh, I've been there. It's going to be okay. It's not like this is going to go away. There are times I'm like back down. You know, I always joke I'm either in my bed in the fetal (laughs) position, falling my eyes out, or I'm either like pinching myself. Like, I can't believe this just happened. Like we're on top of the world. And now I've just learned, you know what? You're on top of the world and tomorrow it may not be. (laughs) So, you know, and and then when you crash, you're going to go back up. So I think it's a little bit that muscle of recovery more quickly. It's not necessarily that you're not going to go through those emotions. I think when people accept that, that really makes a huge difference. But yeah, in terms of, and sorry, your question was more around the... Like energetically, as you were building skin tea, you know, you were postponing stress. You've talked about how you've done a good job with that. That's a huge one for me, huge. Because right now, this is the perfect example. I'm raising $3 million and I need it really, really soon without sharing too much. Like we, and it's like constantly like this when you're fundraising and there's moving parts and things with the business that are going on. And in the past, Mm. I wouldn't get enough sleep. I'd be so stressed. I'd be like freaking out. I really was like, I have to admit, and I'd be freaking out and stressed about it. And, and now I'm kind of like step by step and I'm not going to stress about it now. Like this is something that isn't happening now. And I started to learn, like, it's a narrative in my head. Mm. We're not out of money yet. We have people very interested. Yeah. They might've postponed our meeting by a week, which is making me feel a little anxious, but we're not at a point yet where I need to make a decision on something or it's a moment where there's a problem. So be aware of it and kind of plan ahead, but I don't need to stress right now. I'm going to postpone that. Or there was a time when I was juggling a few things. Like I wanted to lose weight. I wanted to raise some money and I wanted to do something else. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to postpone. It's too much. And I learned that like, you can only have so much willpower. If you're trying to do it all, then nothing's going to work great. So I'm like, I'm going to postpone my worry about my 15 pounds <laughs> yeah. to three months from now, because you know what, right now I'm just going to eat the best I can. I'm not going to make this a thing. The other thing is I'm going to run out of money in six months. I'm going to postpone that worry to next quarter. Because I know that that three months is going to give me enough time to, and then worry about it. But I used to worry about everything ahead of time. <laughs> and I think I am the type who worried about things too much. And I realized that worries causes dementia. Mm. And I started to realize this is going to impact no. my health. And my mom, unfortunately, has dementia. And she's just beautiful and young. And we're looking at treatments. But I think facing her was actually a pivotal moment of looking at my beautiful mom facing dementia. And my mom used to worry a lot. And I started reading a lot about how stress and worrying and those kinds of things affect it. So I started going, you know what? I may be stressing now to cause a problem later. Just let it go right now and take it step by step. And I always go, the biggest gift has been to say, what's the worst that can happen? And process that for a hot minute. And as much as it sounds terrible, it's like, okay, the company shuts down or this goes that, or I feel embarrassed or I feel that, like really process that. And then when you really do, you're like, a thousand people have recovered from that. I think of Steve Jobs and other incredible entrepreneurs who left their company. They went back to their company. And you just look at the bigger yes. picture of that journey and you go, it's going to be okay. And I think mm. that's what I mean by postpone the stress is like pull up a little bit and get the perspective about life. And still, I don't like to say don't worry in a sense of like, don't focus, don't try to put everything into your business and do 200% because that's part of the beauty is being all in. But you don't need to be all in with so much stress. And that's really how I've shifted my perspective on things. Oh, I love that. Because even if you're worrying too much about everything, I feel like it doesn't even allow you to think logically about the right next step for you, for your business. And similar to you, you know, sometimes if I do feel a little bit anxious, I zoom out and I love these podcasts because I realize, wow, there's so many different paths to success. And how do you even define success? Is it building a business? Is it your happiness? Is it your lifestyle? Like, it just makes me always question these things. And I'm just always so inspired hearing other people's journeys. Because like you said, you can be so stuck in the weeds, especially when you're so involved with building like your business, who's your baby, that it's important to just kind of go for that walk and have some perspective because you can easily get stuck in the weeds of everything. So I love that. And you know, one thing you talk a lot about is, and I appreciate about you, is you're not afraid to be feminine in business. And someone who came from the world of banking and tech, I never really saw what that looked like until this podcast started. And (laughs) I'd love to get your perspective around what do you think are some of the advantages or assets of having women in business and really making sure we still, we have the masculine aspect, but we still tap into that femininity we have. You know, I think I always liked to look feminine, but I always thought I had to act masculine, if that makes sense. And I remember when I was at Nike, you know, as Lebanese, we express ourselves with our hands, we're very emotional, expressive. And I remember thinking, 
not everyone was like that because there weren't a ton of Middle Eastern people. And I was like, oh, I, I must look stupid. I must look too bubbly. They're going to think I'm ditzy. Or if I like fashion, I look good. And then, you know, I'm acting bubbly. I might get dismissed. So I remember trying to be using certain words in front of the men and acting a certain way. And I remember speaking at a Nike meeting about that. And I remember a lot of the men at the executives came up and said, wow, like, thank you for sharing that. Because if I really think about it, I have to really think Maybe I do think that it really made them face themselves and it made me face myself. And then when I broke from that, I realized that being myself was the best way. And that would create the most authenticity. Trying to be not who I am made me look sillier. And then getting people to just get to know me and accept. And that if I'm feeling that way, that means I'm insulting all women in my culture and calling them ditzy, right? That they appear that way. So Nike was the beginning of that. And then the other one is I feel Sarah would always say business doesn't have to be war. And if you hear a lot of men, they're like, business is war. And I loved her perspective on it. And I felt like there was a gentleness to it. Like, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing great. And those competitors are great because they're bringing more visibility to what we do. So I started to realize as more and more people started copying us, there was in the initial, a feeling of like, oh my God, we're getting copied because we were the first ever collagen sparkling tea on the market. And then suddenly people started trying to imitate and even some really big brands. And we had to stay true to we're a brand. We're not just a product and what we stand Mm. for. And when you hold on to that and you go, oh, by them joining us, that's the biggest compliment, that imitation. And how do we maintain our holding and our stance? So I started to learn more about, you know, how to operate that way. And I think women who have feminine energy are very collaborative and we care a lot about culture. And I think it fosters innovation, that collaborative spirit. And I think that's the future of entrepreneurship. Not to say that the male isn't important. The male You know, Sarah and I used to always talk about this and she would always say everyone has male and feminine energy inside them. The question isn't about which one's better. The question is about how do you balance that? Because both have so much value and strength in, you know, in terms of how you operate. So I just think about that. I think a lot about diversity on my team and diversity, not just from an ethnicity and um, gender, but also approaches like the super analytical versus those that have entrepreneurial versus those that have corporate experience. So I think it's that balance and that energy of skill set that makes a really beautiful team. It makes it more challenging in the beginning, but the longer term impact is better because if you have all people the same, it seems easier, but then you're not going to innovate or I think really disrupt the industry if, if everyone's the same. So... Yeah. And talking about other brands that were coming in the space that were copying Skinty, I know you guys were the first and you initially get scared and then your mindset gets it fear-based. But you mentioned something that I think is interesting that it's so important that you guys are building a brand and you're not attached to just specifically the product. So I'd love to get your perspective around what are a few things that you think really helps build a brand for a new business that's coming out? Your purpose, 100%. I think brands that are rooted in purpose have an authenticity that is hard to beat because you can't fake that, right? And so Amy Elizabeth and I truly came together from a place of authenticity. We all had breakdowns. I didn't mention theirs, but you know, Elizabeth had lost a child at two, which was horrific. Dr. Amy Bader was newly divorced. So when we all came together as women, it was from a place of major life transitions and challenges. And we created this from our heart. So it came from a place of purpose. And we always knew we were going to create a purpose-driven brand that was part of our DNA. And it's hard to replicate that that easily when it comes to competitors, knowing who you are and standing true. We also wanted to be unapologetically feminine. If you look at our beautiful cans, (laughs) we are the sexiest can and the most beautiful can in the market. And we get so much feedback. And most people are like, wow, it looks like a beauty product. So we noticed a lot of the brands out there, and it wasn't really actually intentional, I'll be honest with you. It was like, everyone's now diagnosing us. They're like, wow, you noticed that all these other brands were very male and like, you know, you look at Red Bull and you look at the colors and women were buying those protein powders and drinks that were very masculine looking. And we were like, well, we just thought it was really nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just Like our main thing was we wanted to stand out. That was our intent. And we got this incredible female designer. Her name is Sally Morrow. She runs Sally Morrow Creative. Incredible woman. So talented. And she gave us five different designs. And our main thing going into it was we want to pop. We know that the shelf is crowded. We want to pop. We just found this to be the most compelling, the most beautiful, and it resonated with us. It wasn't about like, let's make it more feminist. And we just loved the colors and the stripes. And it spoke to us on such a deep level of the layers, meaning all the different layers that we put into it, the layers, meaning all the layers of beauty and and all the different layers of self-care. So it just spoke to us and we rolled with it and it ended up being the biggest hit. A lot of people tell us like, 
they reach for it because it's beautiful and they stick with it because it tastes good, right? That was really a big one for us, disrupting the CPG beverage industry in particular, which usually is a plant with a fruit, white background, Mm -hmm. black background. So there isn't really anything exciting there. So we brought excitement to that. And the reason we did that is we believed there's something very beautiful and something really sexy about health and beauty from the inside out. I love my makeup. I love all these things, but I always joke that skin tea is my foundation and makeup is my expression. Mm. So for me, it's all about having that foundation from the inside out, feeling calm, feeling great and bringing excitement to that, that people understand that if, and I learned it from my health issues, my skin cleared when my health issues went away. When I'm feeling stressed, I break out. And so that understanding that is so important. And that way, when you are using makeup, it's fun. It's like a bonus instead of it being, I'm trying to cover something up. And so that that was a big part of it as well. Yeah. And you guys definitely, in terms of branding, every time I walk into an air wand, there's like this beautiful skin tea <laughs> mirage of everything. It's really stunning. And, you know, you mentioned a few times throughout this interview that the beverage industry is very competitive. It's tough. You know, I'm sure brand is one aspect that you guys were able yeah. to tackle and overcome. But what are some other things that you found as roadblocks that you were able to really differentiate yourself and build this brand? I would say taste is everything. Well, I would say packaging first, because you got to make someone want to reach for it in five seconds when they glance with all that sea of, so I would say packaging, but taste is what makes people come back. And if people aren't going to come back, it doesn't matter. So I would say without sharing too much, our unique formula makes it very light and refreshing. And that's our trade secret. I've seen a lot of other brands pop up with certain amount of collagen and all this different stuff, and they don't taste good. People aren't going to come back. And so for us, it was really around how do you get the best of both worlds? Like you power pack it with herbs and just the right amount of collagen and you round it out with other herbs, all that focus on your immunity, your mood and your skin. So we focused on the formula versus just saying it's just a collagen drink. And that's why it has all these herbs, because we wanted to make sure it was light and refreshing and holistic. And I think taste is is really key. And, And then I think the other one I would say fundraising has been really, really hard. But as three women, we sold that story too. Like we're three women. There's not a ton of women in the beverage industry. There are some for sure that are amazing. But, you know, we really wanted to disrupt the industry. But fundraising was probably our biggest challenge. And the way we overcome that is staying true to who we are, sticking to the story. And I think what is true about what you're saying around you came from the finance world Maybe some investors aren't right for you. The ones Mm. that are overly concerned about our financial model, like I started to finally have this attitude, which is very new, by the way. If you're just going to sit there and look at me through a spreadsheet, then we're moving on because we're the kind of brand that has big dreams, big vision. We're looking at the whole year. We're not so focused on quarterly. We're a private company for a reason. So if they're going to be like every quarter, every quarter on us, maybe you're not right. And it's really starting to understand that the investors you bring on, you have a relationship with them. When things go bad, are they going to be at the table with you supporting you or are they going to be judging your numbers? And that's the only way they're going to evaluate you. So I started to learn early on. I don't know that I would say that gave me an edge, but it's just teaching me through the fundraising process of not everyone's the right person for us at this stage, right? Because of the dreams we have. So the people that we have really believe in the dream and what this could be, knowing that with a startup, especially if they don't understand the beverage industry, it requires a lot of capital investment and margins are tight. So if you're yeah. the type of investor that wants to judge me this year on my margins, then you're definitely not right for me because it's a journey. And so I think you start to really learn who do you want on board and, and who you don't want. And that's a very interesting flip side because I used to just be madly desperate. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just like, I'll take money from anyone because I need the money. It takes a lot of discipline and a lot of belief to then go, you know what, even though I really need it right now, you're not the right partner. Yeah. And did you vet that early on with your first fundraise? Because I have had a lot of women on the podcast that, you know, you were desperate in the beginning. They took on a few investors and now they look back and they have all these words of wisdom of like, do your due diligence, make sure it's the right person. So did you vet them early on or later in your fundraising rounds, you kind of had that perspective? I would say it was very intuitive. So for me, it was very intuitive who was right and who wasn't. I would say everyone I have on board, I adore like my own family. I got really lucky with that. I just remember though, the ones that I'm like, Ooh, dodge that bullet. I'm glad we didn't bring them on because they're more short-sighted versus long-term thinkers. So I really learned that the hard way, more just kind of noticing what they've done with others and what happens there. And then in conversations with people more recently or about, it's kind of like you learn quickly, intuitively, like, Oh, they need to come in 
when things are on a high. So they're going to come in at a less favorable valuation. And that's a trade-off they can make. And the ones coming in now with a little bit more risk will have a... So, you know, you just start to intuitively learn over time. But I wouldn't say I have any now that I feel that way about because early on, I intuitively could tell because of how the conversation would go and they naturally Mm. weed themselves in or out because you get to a standstill, right? Because for them, the numbers matter so much in the early stages, you're not going to have those numbers and you can't promise those margins. You know, it's just not the industry. Yeah, exactly. And I I so appreciate how in tuned you were with your intuition that early on, which clearly is a superpower of yours throughout building and scaling this business. And I want to close on one question. You meet with so many entrepreneurs, I'm sure, advising different businesses. What do you think are two or three mistakes that women in business are making around building their business? You know, it's such an amazing question. One big one for me was not hiring my weakness right away. Hmm. So finance is my weakness and I'm really the strategic, the visionary. And I remember talking to Brian Lee and it was the best conversation. And he's a serial entrepreneur, co-founded Honest Company and LegalZoom. And I mean, he's just phenomenal. But I didn't have a COO, CFO internally in the company Hmm. early on. I was outsourcing it thinking that would be okay. But actually, when it's your weakness, you need that thought partner with you and you need them all in. And so I believe a lot of things, a lot of challenges I faced that are now resolved would have been a lot easier if I had had that person with me all in with skin in the game and make them my true business partner running the company because that was my weakness. And I remember Brian joking and saying, you know, with people that are visionary, like you may be able to launch the brand, but you may run it into the ground. And those that are like super financial oriented may never get it off the ground because they're so conservative. So having that team is really phenomenal. And with Amy Elizabeth and I, they had the strength of R&D, right? They were phenomenal. And then I had the strategy. And even though at Nike, I always had a CFO next to me or at Spanx. So I think learning what you should outsource and what not to is one Another huge mistake is always thinking advisors know better. Oh, interesting. If my advisors are listening, I love you. But sometimes you know better because you're in it in a level that's like really different day to day. So advisors are so critical that they give you advice and that you take that into perspective. But at the end of the day, you've got to trust your gut and what you really know. And they actually respect you more if you can come back and go, I heard you. And here's where I'm thinking of going. But I think I was a little bit too much like they know better there. And I think women do that a lot. Like you bring someone, you're like, they're going to be better just because I have that a lot in me. And now I've learned, you know what? They're really great at this and I'm really good at this. So I need to combine the two and make a good decision. So I think not taking an investor or advisor's word for it in terms of having to go in that direction, like weigh it also against what you feel and be open enough to have the back and forth. I just talked to an advisor yesterday and his direction was actually phenomenal. And I was going in one and after talking it out with him, I felt, oh, that was, that's what I was missing. Those are the gold ones because it's a back and forth versus just saying, okay, I'm just going to do that. And what I did in the early days is not go back and forth because I felt disrespectful. And that's a bit cultural, right? Mm. We're like, they know more, respect them. They're the advisor. And I think now I've learned, oh, no, no, I need to have that back and forth and we'll get to a better place because I know the business really well. And I think the third one real quickly is I think we got to stop being so hard on ourselves. The narrative in our heads, like throw that shit out the door. (laughs) Excuse my French. We've got to throw that out the door. We are so cruel to ourselves. And I started thinking like, I have other friends who are entrepreneurs and my sister's amazing. And I would never say the things to my sister or to others that I say to myself. So I think that's one of the most important things women can do is think, would you say that to someone you love and that you're actually helping with constructive feedback or would you not? And I think once you kind of come to terms with that, that negativity, that narrative energy needs to go energy has such a powerful impact on what you're able to accomplish. I believe in it, that that narrative will send you down a spiral. And it's not like, oh, oh, everything's positive. It's more the narrative of how do you lift yourself out of a situation and know that everything's going to be okay and that you have a belief. If you don't have Mm -hmm. that belief, instead of like, oh, I did this terribly. I did this. I should have done this. It's like, move on. Just move on. Ugh, I love that boss. Oh my gosh, so many things. And that just reminds me, I went to this dinner last night and everyone was a third time entrepreneur doing incredible things in health and wellness. And I was probably the youngest, 
just launched a business and we all had to go around and share our story. And, you know, I, I just channeled in, I tried not to get nervous. I went ahead and did it. And afterwards, you know, people were so receptive asking questions. And I saw my mind start questioning me and thinking, you know, did you say it right? And I just now have gone to a point with a lot of practice, just not even thinking about it, like postponing that, like, it's not going to serve me. It already happened. So I think like the mindset aspect is so key. And really the biggest thing you hear in so many of these interviews that really differentiates someone who's very successful and fulfilled and versus someone who just gets stuck and can't build anything. But those were such incredible tactics. Basima, I so appreciate you joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.